Welcome to the Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company. Hello from Temple Bar, Dublin.
That opening track there was a beautiful air called Lament for Staker Wallace, played by Ilan Piper Mark Redmond in Kilmainham Jail at Tradfest last January. It was special in so many, many ways. And I'm delighted that on today's podcast we're able to speak to the Piper in question. That's Mark Redmond himself. Mark, wonderful to speak to you today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Kieran. Good to talk to you. I know you fairly well over the years because we've met. I met you when you were a student, of course, in DIT, but I didn't know you before that, actually. You're from Gorey in County Wexford. Yeah, uh, I was hiding away for years before that. Do you know something? When I was a teenager, I didn't do as much playing. Um, I was interested in all sorts. And when I was doing the Leaving Cert then, there was a couple of options uh, popped up and I decided I'd go with music. And uh, yeah, that's how our paths eventually crossed. <laughs> Yeah, but where did you get to there? I mean, you can't, you didn't just decide when you leave and start that you'd play the Ilham Pipes. So where did that start? Exactly. So um, I started the Pipes in the year 2000. Um, I got my first starter set in, in April in 2000. And I was really lucky because within about two or three months, a Piper Sub uh, was established in Wexford Town. And um, the main teachers I had there, for it, it, it lasted for about two years. The main teachers I had were... Um, Ned Wall, who comes from down around South Wexford near the Hook Peninsula, and uh, a man called um, John McMahon, then from from Ennis, uh, as you know, yeah, a great great, great area. So John had a fantastic uh, B flat set of pipes, and Ned had a set that was made by Tom White, who was his uh, his grand uncle. So the way it used to work, I was really blessed. I essentially had two teachers for one student uh, at times. I mean, Ned would play the examples and John would write or notate out the music and he's fantastic at that so John couldn't do it with the B flat set he couldn't teach by ear in that way so uh, because the numbers weren't uh, you know there there was no great numbers went to that from one week to the next so it was um, as I say I had the two of them and that only lasted for about two winters then and just I I suppose the lack of interest it died off there was only a, a couple of us there you know and what appealed to you? Why did you? You were a flute player and a whistle player. So what appealed to you about the pipes? Um, I, I'm not sure. It was. I, I hear a lot of people saying it when they when they discover the sound for the first time. It sort of captures them. And uh, I can't remember exactly. I think the first time I had heard a set in person was actually a primary school teacher in Gorey, where I where I went where I'm from, and his name is John O'Brien. He was a a teacher who'd moved into the town from um, North Cork and he had just got a, a starter set of pipes at the time. And I remember it was a rainy day one time. And, you know, if you remember back in those days when it was raining, you had to stay, spend a lunchtime in, in the classroom. So I was already learning the tin whistle at the time as everyone in the class was, but I, I was kind of, I was sort of more interested than just learning the likes of, you know, dawning of the day, that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, I was listening to a lot of Irish music at the time. It sort of just took me and I kept hearing the pipes and but I was never able to put a, a sort of a I was never able to visualize them. I, I kept hearing this unusual sound on the radio, and then one day, sure enough, uh, this teacher pulled out this starter set, and I just remember thinking, Jesus, that's the that's the sound I keep hearing. So I I, I went up to him and I asked him, could I try them and everything else? And uh, he kind of jokingly said, No, you can go off and get your own and try them because I think at the time there was something like three hundred pound or something, yeah. you know, when you consider what they cost today. So I remember coming home that day then and um, to try and describe. To my father, what I'd saw in school, I got two uh, water bottles under my arm and a broken leg of a stool, and I was trying to <laughs> imitate this, <laughs> this unusual instrument. And sure enough, he knew what they were. And uh, just by chance, Tom Rowsham used to spend a lot of time in his family home, in my father's family home, years ago when he was a child. Tom was Leo's uh, older brother. Um, but, of course, that connection didn't 
really mean much to me at the time. It was only on, you know, later on when I got more interested in the history of, of piping that I thought that was a, a really interesting connection. Um, so they used to come down. The Rousons used to spend uh, the summertime down around Courtown or River Chapel in Courtown, just by the sea. It's about 10 minutes outside of Gorey. And as I say, my father was a young lad. He remembers Tom Rouson playing pipes and my, my grandmother was playing the Melodian and he was talking about these great uh, summer sessions out there. And I was kind of thinking that that was a nice connection, you know. You mentioned uh, you mentioned your father there and your grandmother. So, are you from a musical household? Um, not really. I mean, my my father does play a bit. He, he plays a bit on the harmonica, um, and on my mother's side, my mother's side, they play a bit as well. But no one really ever took it serious. You know, like they could play here and there. If someone came up to the house and said play a tune, you could do it. But uh, they didn't really. You know, they never pushed themselves. They didn't take it that serious. You know. Uh, they are and they aren't, if that makes any sense. And any siblings that might play? Um, my sisters played piano and they sort of give it up. My older my, my older sister is a music teacher at the moment. She still plays a bit, but again, she doesn't perform as much. She's a bit she's a bit on the shy side. And then my oldest, uh, my older brothers and sisters did as well. I'm the youngest of six children, and they all got music lessons um, in all sorts of different ways. But I, I, I'm the only one that kind of kept it up to the to that so- extent. So your sister takes after your father. She's on the shy side. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know the man well. Never realised he was a harmonica player. So there's one we have to speak to him about when I see him again, for sure. So then you developed as an Elam Piper. You worked from John McMahon. Let's say you went on from there and that wrought some influence in County Wexford. Where did you go from there? So, yeah, as I mentioned, that stopped up after two winters. Um, and at the time then... John and Ned had young families and they couldn't really take up um, or they didn't really have as much time to dedicate to teaching the pipes. So um, Ned's teacher was a man called Tommy Carney and Tommy was actually responsible for a lot of tuition in the southeast, all around Wexford and Waterford. And we Chancellor Army rang him up one day because um, we'd heard so much about him. And, and sure enough, he said, yeah, no problem teaching me. And he was he was 88 at the time, 88 years of age when I was 12 getting lessons off him. And we used to go down maybe once a month or every every two months. You know, I, I'd, I'd take a, a Friday off school or, or get out a bit early and we'd drive down to uh, Dunmore East, which at the time it was maybe two and a half hours drive, if not more. So we, it used to be a whole day out. I used to really look forward to it. And we'd call into Tommy's house in Dunmore East and uh, he'd get about an hour's worth of a lesson. Um, but the one thing I enjoyed most was after the lesson, when there'd be a bit of sort of a, a chat or, you know, a conversation, and he'd be talking away about all sorts of stories. He was a great man to tell stories. And you really felt a connection with the with the past when he was talking, you know, because his teacher for a man was, uh, for example, was a man called Liam Walsh, who was born in 1866. So you've got this link that goes right back to the 19th century. And it was always just fascinating. And anyone who remembers Tommy, they'll always remember the stories he came out with. So you're, you're actually steeped in the Wexford piping tradition then, because like piping and Wexford are inextricably linked. For sure, yeah. Um, I mean, not as much in recent times as in the past. And I mean, I wasn't even uh, so well up on the connection, even, you know, for years. It wasn't until I um, got a copy of Francis O'Neill's book, The Minstrels and Musicians, published in 1913, that, you know, that I realized how strong it was in this area, but not just in County Wexford, but uh, parts of Carlow, parts of Wicklow, and of course, parts of Waterford as well. I mean, the Southeast was really steeped in it you know there's a whole chapter in that book for example on illum piping in in county wexford which i thought was fantastic um but a lot of it had to do with um a lot of the uh, pipers at that time were well-to-do farmers you know for example the rousons 
um, they were they were big farmers. O'Neill describes them as strong farmers, and it was almost that you know um, they had leisure time to to learn an instrument. They may have had money to buy the instrument to maintain it, and in their case, they maintained it themselves. They were all great uh, reed makers going back over the years. Um, but even there's other lesser known names. Um, for example, there's a, a piper called Robert Brownig, uh, who's from just outside of Gorey, who was a a Church of Ireland farmer and a piper as well. So there was plenty of, of characters like that in the area. Uh, there's been an upsurge, I suppose, in the last couple of years. When I was learning the pipes in Gorey, um, there was only about one or two my age in North County Wexford, whereas now, for example, uh, I teach about three in, in, in the town of Gorey alone once a week. So it's definitely on the upturn. <laughs> so it's on the way back in County Wexford. Is it on the way back like Wexford Holding? <laughs> Are you going to compare me now to Davy Fitz? I don't know. <laughs> I know you have a love for that sport. You nearly, you nearly went and played it and didn't play the pipes. Yeah, for sure. I tell you, I often say to people, if I, if I could live my life again, I don't know what I'd do. I think I'd, I'd, I'd keep playing hurling until I could, and then we'd see what happens after that. <laughs> well, I think people would be disappointed if they were missing out on your piping. Now, you did a, a BMOs, of course, in DIT, then you did a Masters. You're now studying a PhD? Yeah, so I started that in 2016, and I suppose I'm coming towards the end of it. And that's on the topic of, um, to kind of give a, a quick run through, it's the use of villain pipes in orchestral um, context. And there's a historical side to that, which looks at older pipers um, from the 18th century uh, onwards who played, let's say, what we would call non-traditional music in their repertoire. Um, then I look at um, certain aspects of the history, like the... the um, the Gaelic revival period where they sort of tried to stamp out, let's say, foreign influences on music and in particular in piping. Um, and then it goes all the way through the 20th century uh, up until, for example, the, a big moment was um, Sean Davey composing the Brennan Voyage for Limo Flynn. And ever since then, these kind of upsurge in, in pipers who were playing uh, non-traditional music and in non-traditional contexts, such as with string quartets, with orchestras, with uh, um, organ players and, and just general ensembles of Western art music. As I say, I should be hopefully finished in the next uh, touch wood in the next couple of months. <laughs> it's interesting that you should mention that as the PhD because it almost describes your own life in music because you do play with all those different ensembles yourself. Exactly. That that was part of the, the reason behind it. I mean, um, for about, for just over a decade now, I, I, I've been playing with orchestras and with organ players and different ensembles. And I was kind of lucky how it started in the first place. Um, it was actually through DIT in 2010 or 11 when there was a concerto competition in the college, and um, <clears throat> I wasn't going to I wasn't going to audition. I it sort of it didn't appeal to me. But at the time, I was really fascinated by Limo Flynn's uh, collaborations with Sean Davy, and in actual fact, that's one of the reasons I, I went into studying in college. Was I just really loved the sound of orchestras and I, I do actually listen to a lot of classical music so I, I you know I was hoping to get uh, to, to get involved with that somehow and going back to that concerto competition I entered um, I went in and there was a whole panel of the staff there and, and one of them on the, on the panel was David Brophy for example and I played uh, the second movement from the Brennan Voyage and he thought you know he was he was thrilled you know so I was selected to play in the in the conservatory uh, showcase in April 2011 I think it was and that was in the National Concert Hall, and that was with the DIT Orchestra. And that was the first time I'd ever played with an orchestra. I'll never forget the nerves. I was sitting side stage, and I really was, I couldn't, I can't describe the nerves because, you know, as we're all used to playing in more usual settings where you can go out on stage, 
you can talk about the tune you're going to play. You might give the pipes a bit of a tune up and then you're off. In this case, you go out, you know, you're wearing a tux, you sit down and you've no chance you're off. That's it. Pipes are in tune or not. So there's, it was definitely a, an eye opener and it was, it was, it, it was something that I never really was prepared for, if that makes any sense. And one of the reasons then I looked into Ilum pipes in orchestral settings was a lot of the pipers who do it, for example, we're not exactly prepared for it. We're kind of just thrown in at the deep end a lot of the time. So that was kind of what got me started on the whole topic uh, to kind of research it a bit more and highlight different experiences of pipers and, and document all that. And hopefully it might make you know that aspect of piping easier for the next generation you know if if, if that's if they're interested in, in in that it's really a whole new world it's funny we were talking to eleanor mcavoy and zoe conway on this series of podcasts over the last few months and they mentioned they're both trad musicians but they're both classical musicians as well and they mentioned about that and the the looseness of being a trad musician compared to you know the structured uh, way that you have to perform with an orchestra now of course there's one thing playing a violin with four strings in it you tune them up you walk out the pipes are a different animal altogether because they can decide to go their own way at times exactly and i mean even that I mean, a lot of traditional fiddle players, as we know, can take some form of um, influence from classical players or some sort of technique um, where there isn't uh, an ilum pipe equivalent in the orchestra, if you know what I mean. The closest relative, I suppose, of that instrument is the oboe, and it's a double reed instrument like that, but it's different as well because ours is a, is a, a capped uh, instrument, whereas theirs is mouth-blown. So there's all sorts of issues at play, and we've seven reads on the go, and if you've got a composition that requires the use of all the drones and the regulators and everything else, um, that's that's going to sort of cause a bit of a headache. But but not even that, just going back to how we're taught pipes, for example, um, it's still in the traditional manner where, you know, it's, it's you learn by ear, uh, uh, apprentice kind of class, master, pupil kind of thing. Um, so there's no sort of, no one has really looked into other compositions with different time signatures and everything else. And that was probably the most challenging part about playing with orchestras was different time signatures that we're not used to um, and counting bars. I always found the most uh, frightening part of playing with an orchestra is when you're not playing and, and especially when you're not a soloist um, because when you're a soloist, the conductor is going to keep an eye on you and you'll be perfect and he'll give you the cue when to come back in. Whereas if you're part of the ensemble, the conductor has to look at, you know, maybe a hundred odd people, uh, and if sometimes he's not going to be able to give every single person in the orchestra the cue to come in. So there was a couple of times in the past where I might have been playing a movie soundtrack, new uh, music or um, cartoons, Pixar cartoons, for example, that featured pipes or whistle. And having not ever got any kind of um, tuition to kind of deal with that, there was a couple of times where you were so nervous that you might miss the cue or you might come in or you mightn't come in and everything else. So that was always a frightful, a frightful part. And it only ever happened once, thank God, and it only ever happened in a rehearsal, but it was it was actually in about 2014, I think it was. It was um, a Pixar night with the concert orchestra up in the um, the Borgosh Energy Theatre. And it was my first time playing with an orchestra where I wasn't, let's say, getting special attention as the Ilan Piper soloist. In this case, I was in the orchestra, if you know what I mean, sitting up beside the oboe players and everything else. And I was with, I was sitting there almost waiting for the conductor to give me the nod and he never did and he stopped and he said, oh, you were in there and I was, I was kind of thinking, well, <laughs> why didn't you tell me, <laughs> you know? So um, that was, um, I won't say who the conductor was, but nine times out of ten when I'm playing with an orchestra, it's David Brophy and he's fantastic because he's such an interest in traditional music and he'll always kind of keep a special, special eye out for us knowing the background and how we learn traditional music as opposed to orchestral music. 
Um, so it's when you get a conductor that's not necessarily um, used to dealing with traditional musicians is when you kind of, there's a bit of a panic sets in. Uh, it's funny, Mark, that's six years ago and you still remember it like it was just yesterday. I'll tell you what, I could name, I could name who it was. <laughs> I got such a fright. We're, we're, we're okay for naming. You, you mentioned actually uh, Liam Mufflin. You also mentioned the DIT Orchestra. That's TU Dublin now, of course, and you're, you're, you're teaching there yourself. But you mentioned Liam Mufflin. He, like, he was hugely influential in the development of the pipes in this genre we're speaking about now with orchestras. Did you ever get a chance to play a tune with him? Um, not I never played a tune at him, but um, I, I spoke to him. There was actually a couple of concerts where we were in in the concert together, but we didn't play together. Um, there was one, for example, uh, around that time as well, around 2011, where he was on doing his bit, and then later on I was in with the orchestra as well doing another bit. Um, as far as I remember, that was when Neil Martin, uh, it was either Neil was conducting or he had done some arrangements. Um, so I was talking to him backstage for, for plenty on that. And then even in advance of that, I remember meeting him one time to talk about his experiences and you know something I, I'm sort of kicking myself that I never followed up on it because he really uh, found out the hard way and he not just playing the Olympics with an Irish orchestra with an Irish conductor but with different orchestras all over the world and with different conductors all over the world and talk about being thrown in at the deep end he was absolutely fired in at the deep end you know you know playing the the Brendan Voyage in the Sydney Opera House for example with a, with a, an Australian orchestra and, and having to deal with the the climate over there and everything else, you know, it was really, I mean, he really broke down so many barriers. So when I say I, I was sorry, I never followed up on it. I mean, I recorded a bit of an interview with him in around that time, 2011, that I, I used in my in my master's dissertation. And um, it, it came in handy this year, um, February 2020, um, the annual Leo Rousen commemoration in the Pibrialan was was uh, on the topic of Limo Flynn. So I was asked to do a bit about Limo Flynn and I was just thrilled that I could go back and take a few, uh, let's say, snippets from the interview with him about, you know, his experience of, of playing with an orchestra. But as I say, I was sorry I never contacted him, you know, and interviewed him again on that sort of aspect of his life because even when I was doing it, he was... Um, he was saying most of the time when he's interviewed for magazines or books or projects, it's always on about his connection with Leo Rousem or his connection with Seamus Ennis or Woody Clancy or with Planksteer or with his own solo career. And he said there wasn't, it was never really that much of uh, an interest in the likes of the orchestral uh, performances he'd done. So as I say, I, I, I really regret not ever expanding on, on the information that I'd already gathered at, at that time. Well, you're carrying on in his footsteps, actually. He was special, though, and you could use the word pioneer when you'd be talking about Liam O'Flynn and Ilan Piping. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, again, not just with orchestras. You know, it, it actually got it got to a point where if I thought it was a great uh, collaboration with a different instrument or, or anything like that, you could be full sure he'd already done it. There was times I was thinking, Jesus, there's nothing he hasn't done, you know, because even in 2000 and um, around 2012 as well, I started playing with the organist uh, David Bremner in Christchurch, and of course, I was I was aware that Limo Flynn had played with uh, Catherine Ennis uh, on the organ. And again, it's such a fantastic sound. Um, and, you know, it, it was actually hard to come up with some original uh, performance, you know, because, uh, you know, pioneer Limo Flynn is right. He had, he'd nearly done everything already, you know. Uh, Mark, we started off there with a piece called Lament for Stecker Wallace. I mentioned that it was special in many, many ways. And it was. It was for you and it was for everybody that was there in Kilmainham Jail in January of this year at Tradfest. Would you just explain the background to it? Eamon Kant first. Yeah, um, Eamon Kant was a piper and the pipes I played at that event were 
his set, but I believe he had two sets of pipes um, and, and they were older sets. So before he was executed, he was um, at one point the chairman of the Dublin Pipers Club, which was founded around 1900. And um, he was very active in, in promoting piping. And um, I'm not certain, but I think he may have had some bits and pieces of the instrument with him when he was sent to Kilmainham. Uh, if that's true, that would have been um, very significant. Um, and the pipes that I was playing on that occasion were they were kind of a, a mismatch uh, of an instrument. It was made by a couple of makers um, all throughout the early uh, 19th century. For example, it was it was stamped coin and one of the pipes, it was stamped cana and another one. And it was it would have been an old instrument uh, by the time Eamon Kant was playing it. So, for example, you're throwing another 100 years on top of that. And it was an awkward set to play. It really was. I mean... Um, we have to remember that when he got interested in the pipes, there hadn't been a professional pipe maker in Ireland, uh, certainly in, in the Dublin area, since um, around the end of the famine, since uh, the coin workshop closed up in, in Dublin around 1860, I think. Um, so there's a 40 year period there where, you know, you were getting these old instruments and you might have been replacing one bit with a bit from another set of pipes and, and they weren't very uniform they were, as I say they were awkward to play uh, so that was one challenge um, but this, the tone of them really was fantastic and it was it was send shivers up your spine playing that instrument uh, knowing the history be, behind them if, if you know what I mean and of course playing in that setting as well in Kilmainham it was just it was spine tingling and, and the amount of people who came up to me who were there or, or who, who made a saw there was a clip of it on YouTube and I think it went viral there was about 10,000 views uh, that weekend alone um, so it really was it was an absolute honour to play that set in there and uh, it was it was so moving for everyone who was in the audience and for me playing it as well like I really hope it actually happens again because it, it worked so well um, and the tune I played Staker Wallace the reason I played that um, you know I know that there is some accounts of tunes that um, can't play but the reason I chose that one was um, it's based on it's a lament for Staker Wallace, who was uh, a United Irish leader who, who was beheaded or lost his life in, in 1798. Um, and I just thought it was a comparable story to um, to um, Kant's end, if you know what I mean. And another reason I, I chose it was um, the tune appeared in print for the first time in 1914. It was collected by PJ McCall, and he got it from um, a fiddle player in Limerick, I believe, um, I'll have to double check, but the tune appeared in, in print for the first time in, in 1914. And since the publication was about Irish music, you, you can be full sure that Kant would have been aware of it and may have learned the tune. You know, we, we won't ever know that. Um, so I just thought it'd be a nice connection with the story of the tune and, and where it was got and everything else. And actually where you performed in the jail that day, you were only just a few paces from the cell where Kant was kept himself. Exactly, yeah. Um, and there was a few people trying to lock me in a, in a cell afterwards as well. <laughs> yeah, but just before his execution, no, I just I was there on the day. I've seen it on YouTube, and it is there all the time. But it was just a, a phenomenal performance. It was just so emotional the whole thing. And you were there with the uh, National Folk Orchestra, which is another group you've played with over the years. But that's a that's a different discipline as well for you. Yeah, that that was an enjoyable uh, occasion. Any time I played with the National Folk Orchestra. Um, it, it's sort of a new concept as well, uh, a traditional orchestra where you've got traditional musicians playing in a large group like that. Over the last six or eight months, we've been speaking to musicians and performers and they've been speaking about, some of them have been kind of interested in playing and rehearsing and practicing at home. Others have not so much the same, but you've been incredibly busy. 
Yeah, um, I mean, of course, there was the live concerts went and everything else, which was unfortunate. But um, I was lucky as well, um, you know, thanks to the likes of Culture Ireland and, and other uh, organisations who were, you know, presenting opportunities for musicians to play from home. And, for, you know, I, I done a lot with Culture Ireland. I done the um, the um, Ireland Perform series and then later on the um, Philadelphia Folk Fest. So they were great occasions to get ready, you know, to prepare for and just keep your mind occupied. And there was knowing that there was something coming up to, to play, um, as, as well as that, the PBL and done one called Piping from the Parlour. Uh, and then there was a few other um, bits I done online and all the teaching, for example, at the Fla Kyol, uh, that was online and the performance was all online. So it wasn't, I was, I really, I, I felt lucky that it wasn't really one week went by where there wasn't something to do, if you know what I mean. Um, and then when we went into level two, I think, was it around April, uh, sorry, around uh, August, um, the local uh, Teeter and Gorey had throwed on a, a couple of concerts for local musicians where they were allowed uh, to hold 50, um, you know, and, and, and I would you say a maximum of 50 people in the audience and even preparing for that that was such a thrill to go back and play for a, a live audience so it was a straight it was strange in one sense that you're in these big halls with only 50 people and you know you can say they were they were sold out with 50 people um but it was just really great to get back playing for a live audience and then it wasn't long then before we were back in level five and actually in the case of dublin it never left it so i had to do um in september i had to play with the national symphony orchestra and that was a very unusual experience as well because there was no audience whatsoever and the symphony orchestra themselves were reduced to maybe about a quarter of the of the usual number for social distance reasons and safety and everything else. Uh, so that was the strangest uh, atmosphere of all time to be in the National Concert Hall, to be finished playing a, a big night of uh, Irish uh, compositions and then afterwards just basically walking out, getting in the car and driving home. There was no there was no great after party like there always was. It was very strange. Um, so that was some, yeah, they were all just an example of little um, performances that occupied me over the over the lockdown. And since September then, I've been back teaching a lot with TU Dublin and um, I do a bit of lecturing with the Royal Irish Academy of Music and a bit in DCU as well. So yeah, there hasn't been, you know, even, even though we're in lockdown, it hasn't felt like that because there wasn't one week where I could actually switch off and relax. And by the way, do you teach outside of the colleges that you teach in? Do you do a bit of work online? Are you available as a teacher online is what I'm wondering. Uh, sometimes, but there, there, I, I do teach a, a few locals around. Uh, as I say, there's there's a three or four pipers in the Gorey area uh, or in the North Wexford area who started, um, and they have been from time to time just coming up to my house. So again, with lockdown and everything else, that's all happened online. So generally, the teaching I do is with organisations. But if there's anyone around who's interested, you know, I, I can't say no to them either. Uh, you also actually you performed with Sule and you also performed with Eilish Lavelle in the Highlands Gallery up in Drogheda. Yeah, they were two. Uh, I forgot to mention them. They were very enjoyable occasions. Um, with with Sule, that was a pre-recorded track for the RTE um, Culture Night Special, and uh, then afterwards we were we, we spent two days in Dublin Castle filming that, and that went out on I think it was part of Nationwide on on Culture Night. So again, it was great to be back. Um, in, in, even though it wasn't live such it was great to be back in a setting with other musicians and actors and, and for two days you know you would kind of forget that there was a, a worldwide pandemic where you know we all had to uh, look after ourselves and social distance and everything else and it, of course there was a lot of um, safety precautions in place for that and then not long after that as you mentioned I was up with um, Eilish Lavelle who I knew from the 
undergrad days in DIT about 10 years ago as well. Eilish is a, a great uh, harpist and, and she plays in a really strong manner because her brother's a piper, so she's used to playing with pipers. And that was just 40 minutes up in the Eileen's um, Gallery in Drada and it really was fantastic. It was, it was streamed online and as well as that, they were allowed to have, I think, about 15 people in, in the uh, gallery as well. So again, just to be back playing for live audience, it was absolutely fantastic. I um, found uh, that actually talking to people, the whole idea of just playing a few tunes with other musicians and being able to look them in the eye while exactly. you're playing and kind of swap the music with them has been, well, that's been sorely missed by so many. So you've been you've been lucky, I suppose, in ways to be able to do that. Definitely, yeah. And I mean, we couldn't really meet much in advance. I hadn't, uh, I think a year had passed since I'd actually played with Eilish. So we met up about an hour in advance, played it and then went and done the concert and and. Uh, you know, the, the staff up, up in the gallery couldn't believe that we just pulled it off. You know, I think there was a bit of a an edge to it as well because we hadn't played. So we were a bit, you know, we were, we were a bit nervous because we had got used to playing, let's say, in front of screens and everything else. And it's just, just a completely different buzz when you are playing in a live setting. And it's uh, it's it's brilliant. You, nothing can compare to it, you know, except maybe Hurling and Crow Park. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something we won't be looking at for a while, at least not from Wexford or County Clare, for another while to go yet. But anyway, sure, we can live in hope on that one. Oh, By the well. way, Mark, every time I talk to pipers and every time pipers meet, they talk about other pipers and listen to other pipers. Do you listen to anything besides piping musically? Yeah, definitely. You know, if the truth be told... Um, I probably listen to, uh, this is going to sound very strange, but I probably listen to piping least of all. But when I was younger, I, I absolutely immersed myself in piping and I listened to every piper that was going and every CD that came out, I had it. So that was a great um, development, I suppose. But then as you get older, you know, you start experiencing more music. But I always had an interest in all types of music. And I mentioned earlier on about the the interest in orchestral music. Um, so you're more likely to hear me listening to classical music you know, sometimes before traditional music, but if, if the truth be told, I listen to anything and everything. Um, and if I have something coming up, for example, like I mentioned, the um, Mihal Osulawan music, you know, I wasn't so familiar with that. Um, so if something like that is coming up, for example, you tend to listen to it, you know, as much as you can to really get it in on your on your mind. Um, so if, if I'm not preparing anything that's coming up, I'll just, I'll listen to anything at all. So no, you, you can't direct us in any way that we might find some comfort in music that you're listening to? Um, and, and yeah, even saying that, it's a long time since I found music comforting as well. Like when I'm listening to it, I, 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 I generally have to learn something. So I'm always sort of focused as opposed to, you know, I, I rarely sit back and listen to music simply for the enjoyment. Um, and I think that comes with when you're, you know, performers that, you know, you know, so that's why I'm saying I'd love to switch off for a couple of weeks, uh, and just, and, and listen to music for the sake of it. But, um, yeah, for now it's, it's more like homework. <laughs> Now, when I was getting ready to call you there for this podcast, there was a bit of work going on in the background there, and I thought, God, you'll you, you'll ruin your hands there. Where are you at? <laughs> uh, I hope you didn't hear any of it when when we were talking. You know, um, <laughs> myself, and my wife Claudia are moving into uh, what used to be an old stable. Would you believe? And over the years, there was partitions put in and and hard wall and everything else to cover up the old stones. So. We're doing a bit of job at it, a bit of a job in, at, at the moment, and we thought it'd be nice to, you know, uh, reveal the old old stone walls. So just before you rang there, myself and my father were in hammering at the wall and hammering at each other as well because if I do it one way, it's wrong, and if he does it his way, it's wrong. So there's always arguing going on. So that was that was the crack before you rang. <laughs> so sure, you should have whipped out the pipes and he get the more dog and you settle it between exactly. you. <laughs> Well, look, we look forward to seeing you at Tradfest in January for sure. 
whether it's a live event or whether it's online. We certainly look forward to that. Uh, Mark, we wish you all the very best actually into the future and continued success with this study and the performances. We'll be watching out for you. Thanks a million for being with us on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Kieran. All the best. Thank you for listening to the Tradfest podcast. For more information on Tradfest, go to tradfest.ie. Tradfest is brought to you by the Temple Bar Company.